And the fact is this, boys. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Hiya, and welcome to The Curve Podcast. My name is Andrew Pierce, and I'm bringing you discussions about Australian films and culture with the people who bring them to life. This podcast is recorded in Bulu, Perth, Western Australia, sovereignty never ceded. Much of what I do with The Curb is in a bid to shine a light on voices that may not often get the chance to be heard. That's a mindset that carries through with director Marion Pulaski's tenderly empathetic and joyfully curious documentary Isla's Way. Here we meet Isla Roberts. Isla isn't a lesbian, she's not a leso, she's not a dyke, she is just Isla Roberts. She lives with her friend, Susan, and throughout the course of the film, we hear their stories. Isla is persistent and resilient, living for her country and the ponies she rides with. She's shaped by the land, and the land has shaped her soul and world view. Death is a matter-of-fact occurrence, and the town that Isla calls home sees her as a surrogate euthanizer, assisting with the dispatching of horses, sheep, or dogs that may need, that may need ushering on their way. In reflecting on the past, we see the way Australia has changed and shifted thanks to the women of the nation. Isla is a proud feminist, and her efforts to ensure that the women of the region are supported in their endeavours, and she's rewarded by having a street named after her. Isla talks about a man she meets in the supermarket who has a broken back. He sees her hugging a friend and he asks, what does one need to do to get a hug like that? Isla's response is a tender one, outlining the process of how a hug works. It's that kind of physicality that feels like it's missing in the bond between Susan and Isla. While some things change, Isla's mindset about sexuality doesn't. Susan clearly loves Isla and Isla loves Susan. But that love exists outside labels. Isla's Way is a frank and open film, yet it's never a dour one. It suggests a transference of the ages. Isla talks about her wedding taking place in the registration office where she misremembers briefly an absent husband, her deceased partner, Alan. Meanwhile, a wedding with her grandson takes place in a field surrounded by friends and family. Elsewhere, Isla recalls the last time that she saw her twin sister before she passed away. Later, twin great-grandchildren are born. The warmth of the past lights the way for time to move forward. Isla knows that she will die soon, and so be that when it happens. But she also knows that her actions will now leave a mark. She talks about the collective actions of women and how men would never group together to organise a pony club where disabled folk can ride. And she's right, too. Through this film, I'm great to have gotten to know Isla. I feel many others will, too. I look forward to spending time with her again in the future with this gem of a film as I uh, think about it and revisit it in subsequent viewings. I cherish these kinds of films completely. They're part of what makes us who we are. Equally so, I cherish the chance to be able to talk to Marion about the making of Isla's Way and what her experience of getting to know Isla and her extended family was like. We talk about the importance of telling stories that are unsexy or not attractive for funding bodies. And additionally, the power of seeing an 87-year-old woman on a cinema screen. Isla's Way is currently making its way around Australia after its debut at the 2023 Adelaide Film Festival. Please do yourself a favour and make time for Isla's story. Thank me and Marion later. To listen to other interviews, visit thecurb.com.au. Uh, but for now, here is a clip from the film, followed by the chat with Marion Pulaski. There was an old woman called Isla who could not find her vagina. 
Meet Aussie bush mechanic and carriage-driving legend Isla Roberts. They don't make them like Isla anymore. I could go down a well and pull a bloody dead kangaroo out. Garden, had a lovely garden. Kill a sheep. She lives a quiet life in Australia. You're pushing? With her friend Susan. Friend is. Do you think? Your constant companion? Ah! Stop it! Isla's kind. So I shot it. I cut all their throats. The dogs ate his brains. If you want uh, a horse, dog, cow put down for some reason, she doesn't do humans. Bang! <laughs> and very, very straight. I'm not a lesbian. Isla's not a lesbian, you know that, don't you? She is. I'm Isla Roberts. Full stop. What's the journey been like to... Obviously, you had a screening at Adelaide Film Festival. What was that that like, uh, having it screened there at, in a hometown setting? Yeah, well, it, well, as you would expect, it was very warm and uh, they all embraced it completely. Lots of family and friends of Isla and Susan. And it was the first time that Isla and Susan had seen the film. So uh, it was fantastic. Yeah, it was... Uh, they loved it. And then, of course, you know that it's a warm audience, so you wait until some other audiences see it. But as we've gone along, um, especially this last little bit, going to places like Mansfield and Swan Hill, and you're you're showing it to people who have no connection to you whatsoever, probably don't go to festivals, and they've just heard about it or they've seen the poster and they like the look of it or they're into horses. And their reaction has been so incredibly satisfying. Yeah, really, really lovely. Uh, quite a few tears, which which is uh, kind of surprised me, I suppose. Well, I imagine probably happy tears in a lot of ways because yeah. there is this wonderful sense of acknowledgement and recognition of a way of life that has kind of mm -hmm. moved on from now, but it's also mm -hmm. a recognition of... You know, there is a, a wonderful acknowledgement for the silent elder queers who aren't really acknowledged in Australian history, and that in itself is such a powerful thing. So it's wonderful. Well, they're not cool. Story. They're not cool or sexy, are they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, they've got to be the hip. I mean, I don't things. think young. Yeah. yeah, I don't think young commissioning uh, editors. You know, perhaps it's not on their radar that. You know, there are these women in their 80s and 90s who have led these really extraordinary lives but just appear ordinary. You know, she could just be a little old lady until you meet her. And I think that's definitely one of the reasons why I wanted to make this because otherwise who is going to tell that story? Nobody. It would just disappear the time. Like, and, and that's mm. the thing is, you know, the, the way that Isla lived her life and... You know, growing up and and with the husband that thankfully mm. we don't get to see he sounds like a not a very pleasant person um well he but was but he was unwell of, he was unwell that aspect is so vital because again it's a it's about who gets to tell stories and deciding the sexiness i guess is for want of a better term of a story how attractive is it and as you're saying like people have come out because they've heard you know, it's got interesting story or maybe it's got good mm. buzz or something like that. And mm. there's something a little bit unexpected about that. I wish that people would pay a little bit more attention to the fact that these stories are right out there needing to be told. It's important. It's vital. Um, 
So with that in mind, I let's agree. go back to mm. when you first heard about Isla's story and mm. decided that this was the story that you wanted to tell on film. Well, the cinematographer is David Roberts, and David Roberts is Isla's grandson. And I have a company with a producer, uh, Georgia Humphreys, Corner Table Productions, and we had often worked with David on various projects. So we were working on a different documentary, which I kind of wasn't feeling the love for, and I knew that I just couldn't commit to it. And David said to me, I really think you should meet my grandmother. He talked about it before and, you know, just see what you think. So I did meet her and I met her a couple of times. And I thought to myself, like I said before, if, if we don't tell this story, who is going to tell this story? And I just kind of took a deep breath and I thought, just want to follow her around for a year. I just want to see what happens, let her life unfold. I wanted it to be a quite almost a photographic journal of her life because I'd been influenced by a beautiful photographic book called um, Katie One Summer about a little girl who lived on a farm. It was published in the 70s. And I thought this is Isla One Summer, except it's, you know, Isla through the seasons, you know, a whole year. And lots of things happened. You know, I didn't know that she was going to have two new grandchildren and I didn't know anything about the horse car. I knew nothing that was going to happen. I mean, the stuff I knew, which was I knew I wanted to take her back to her marital home. I knew I wanted to go shopping with her to see what she was like in a shop. You know, those kinds of those kinds of domestic things. I just wanted to see her life and how she lived in it. What was it like meeting her for the first time then? You'd got this expectation or this idea of who she might be from her grandson. I didn't really have any expectations. I, I you know, she's not a famous person. She's not a celebrity. So uh, I didn't think anything. I just thought I'm interested in this person because of what David's told me. And I met, I think I met her and Susan at the same time. And I, the one thing I do remember thinking was that my mother died when she was 64. So I did think, wow, she, you know, my mother would be her age. You know, I was thinking a lot about that when, when I kind of first was talking to her because my mother was also quite bold and uh, outspoken and, yeah. So, no, I didn't have any expectations. I didn't. Mm. What about her expectations from you? Did she kind of Nothing. say anything about she, that? <laughs> no. I don't, she I'm does not, not ex- yeah. <laughs> yeah, she does not expect anything. She lives completely and utterly in the moment. She is a doer. Things get done. You know, if people are annoying, if thing, you know, if people are annoying or things don't go away, she's like, fuck it and move on. You know, she just doesn't. She's from that generation where they just do. And I think you you have seen the film yourself, and you you know, I realised very quickly that this was not going to be this person who how shall I put this, unfurled themselves to me and and showed me this amazing side to her that I never knew existed. No, that is not what happened. And so I thought I need to set that up very early in the film so that people can just go along with her and they can expect what they've seen at the beginning. They can expect more of that rather than, I mean, there are surprises, absolutely. But Isla is Isla, I think, all the way through. Yeah. I mean, that's what I love about those initial conversations that you have about who she is as a person and her sexuality and her response is so genuine. No, I'm Isla. Mm. That's, that's it. Nothing else. Mm. That's, that's who I am as a person. And again, it's that, as you're saying, it's that living in the moment of, you know, appreciating Mm. who she is right now and the journey that she's had right to then. And she might be 
exactly the same person tomorrow, but might be a little bit different. Who knows? But yeah, I don't know. There's something that's so frank and honest about it, yes. which is, is comforting. It's nice and it, yeah. Imagine it must be a delight to have been in her presence as well. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I think we live in this kind of postmodern 21st century bubble of kind of identity and labeling and and kind of a self-conscious awareness of of ourselves and our lives and our friends and media and and so when I ask her that question about coming out I'm I'm so taken aback that she doesn't know what that means and then I'm thinking in my head how do I explain this in in the simplest possible terms right I mean I was just completely unprepared for that I mean I hope that I didn't I think I did an okay job because it was for to explain it to her, you know, and in relation to Susan's identity. But she just defies all of that. And in her own way, actually, that makes her kind of quite radical and postmodern, but in her own way. Yeah, there's nothing there's nothing offensive or, you know, no. problematic about it. It's just who she is as a person. And she sees, mm. I like the, the continual discussion that she has with Susan about that relationship because there mm. is, you can tell that Susan wants it's kind of an affirmation of it and understanding that, yes, this is a, a relationship that we're in. But for Isla, that's redundant. It, it doesn't matter. You know, she spends time with Susan and that is the relationship that matters. It doesn't need a label. And it does, you know, at the end of it, I did sit there and I think I thought, you know, we do rush to put labels on so many different things. And for a lot of people that is greatly important, but also it does almost kind of pigeonhole us and reduce who we are as people sometimes. And I'm glad that, you know, Isla doesn't say, yes, I'm this, I'm yet, I'm that. She's just Isla because we need people just like Isla. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, part I of the charm of the film. Absolutely. And I sympathize with Susan's need, you know, Same. and, and, yeah. but I think that, you know, I think she knew what she was signing up for. And after 40 years, if she doesn't like it, I mean, obviously she's reconciled to, uh, you know, the policy statement, as she calls it, of Isla's identity. But they do seem to get on very well and they have a lot of fun together. And Isla loves her for sure. She just finds it very, very difficult to say things like that, whether or not, not that's a product of an upbringing in, you know, rural Australia at a time where I'm sure that it was frowned upon, absolutely, and illegal. So um, I wonder whether it's a, a little bit of a holdover of that combined with Isla's own uh, ability to just not listen to anybody else but herself, including society. There's also a sense that, you know, from, you know, the rural aspect of, of Isla growing up, talking about emotions wasn't something that was done. And that's usually typified as being a masculine thing. Men don't talk about their emotions, but it seems to be very much a regional thing too. You don't talk about that. What was it like kind of pulling those emotions out of Isla in conversations? And how did you manage to navigate seeing how she would talk about how she felt about the past? Yeah, I think I was gently persistent over, over a long enough time where I would myself in, in before I would, you know, interview her, I would make a decision whether or not I'm going to really push it because there were times earlier on I had to kind of understand that because if I pushed it too hard, she would just shut down and that would be it. There'd be nothing. 
So it was kind of navigating a way to a point where I would perhaps use Susan as that person who kind of pushed it a little bit or or an event would be happening. I think going back to her marital home stirred up quite a bit for her because she would never talk about Alan at the beginning of the, of the year, you know, over the year. She would just say that is not a subject I'm prepared to talk about. But she did eventually talk about him going to a psychiatric hospital and how frightened she was and the possibility of her killing him. You know, she had to give her guns away because she felt she was capable of killing him. So I just didn't want that to, to kind of be her story all about Alan and the husband and how she got through um, his schizophrenia, which I think a lot of families have to go through. So uh, I don't dwell on that, but it's absolutely a part of who she is and, and is touched upon. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to the identity of labels and things like that. She's not mm. a person who had a husband with schizophrenia. She is, you know, that is part of who she is as a person. I'm mm. curious then if you can talk about how your days started when you were shooting. Did you have an idea of what the day's events were going to be or was it like, I'm going to wake up, go and see Isla and then follow what happens? Well, sometimes we did and sometimes we didn't. So... Uh, with Isla and Susan, you do have to plan a little bit to make sure they're available or or there are certain times where, you know, you're just not going to film because, you know, with the schedule that they have, you know, lunch at a certain time and, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, she is 88. Um, so we filmed about 40 scheduled days over, over the course of the year, plus there were probably another 10 or 15 that were unscheduled or or David would, you know, take some things going on, you know, when I wasn't there and, you know, her doing things. I was very interested in getting the doing of Isla. And they found that quite, they couldn't understand why I was interested in that. And I said, well, I just don't want to do an interview with you or else it's not a, it's why would you go to the cinema to see an interview? You know, I need to get into your world and what you do in your world, which includes going shopping. <laughs> you know, that was a tough one to, to say, you know, please let me come shopping with you. Um, just things like that, building the electric fence, getting boards, you know, going, going to see her, her great grandson, uh, you know, on the pony. Yeah. I mean, there were a few very planned things. The trip to Bascom Wells was planned obviously because we had to get a plane and, you know, then drive 190 kilometers north of Port Lincoln and down a dirt track. And you've seen the footage. Yeah. Unexpected things happen. But um, no, you never knew what you were going to do. Depended what they were doing in their life, really. I think that's what I like about, as you're saying, you know, it's important to show going shopping because there is something that is so delightfully celebratory about the mundane actions of our lives that's in the film. And that's, you know, I went shopping last night and I was actually thinking about it, not because of the film, but just in general of how my process of going through a shop and picking up things is completely different than somebody else's. And it says so much about a person. You know, it, it, it tells us who we are. Um, I mean, she has, such, so much she about has such purpose yeah. when she shops, doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, boom, boom, boom. You know, and she gets the right cheese. That was great. You know, the whole shopping sequence is all about her getting the blue Costello cheese, right? But, um yeah, it had, a, it had its own little narrative arc that was fun to shape. But, I mean, I was really taken aback how she shopped as well. I just thought, wow, you don't mess about. <laughs> yeah. So with that in mind as well, you've you've 
likely got to have some kind of shorthand having her grandson there. Does that help build that relationship immediately, the rapport between each other straight away, having him there shooting and all that kind of stuff? Um, I think so. Make it a little bit easier? Yeah. Yeah, I think it did help. Of course, it helps with access. Um, but some things I don't think necessarily were comfortable for David to be in the room. So we would just set up the camera and David would kind of, I'd say to him, look, David, I'm going to talk about some stuff that might be uncomfortable for a grandson, a grandson to listen to. So why don't you just kind of go in the kitchen and set up the camera kind of thing? So um, there are quite a few interviews where he's not there in the same room as us. Yeah, because she's such a stoic, you know, a lot of the time if David is there, she just, you know, and David is a stoic, you know, they just kind of shut down a little bit. So it just depended on what the scene was. I mean, for me, the best the best example of that is her talking about getting married in Port Lincoln to David after the wedding. And I just absolutely love that, that, you know, she can't, uh, I mean, it's a spoiler, but, you know, what she can't remember about the wedding day to me is hilarious, you know. And David's trying to understand it and, I don't know, things just just happen in front of in front of a lens that you know you've got to feel happy about i did love that moment it, it does show how memories change over time and how yes. our experiences change over time and that is something that is so hard to present you know and you know without kind of being disrespectful or anything like that it's hard to put that kind of perspective on screen and it's so wonderfully realized in that discussion there i i found it quite beautiful on the same hand, it's kind of amusing in some capacity as well. Yeah. What's it like and then, sitting there watching that take place? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm punching the air, you know. I'm thrilled. Fantastic. And then I know in my mind that I've got this exquisite archive picture. So she's describing something, and I know that, you know, we're all thinking about that description. And then right at the end of the conversation, we just go to that that picture of her on her wedding day, and it reminds us, my God, this is like... 70 years ago you know 65 years ago so you really get that impact of actuality and nostalgia and memory and um like you say how you process memory and and what memory becomes yeah i'm quite fascinated by that and as we talked about this is a distinctly australian story and i understand that you wanted to have that sense of Australianness there for not just for the story, but for yourself as well. And I'm curious if you can talk about that drive to feel Australian. How, do you now feel Australian after having shot this film? Uh, I, yes, more. I do feel more Australian. But as the child of, you know, migrant parents with funny accents and funny food, you know, you come to Australia as a, you know, I was young, I was three, but, you know, you're growing up in a in an environment that's so different from all your friends. And like any kid, you just want to be like them. You know, you want you want Mexican sausages, which are sausages with some chopped tomato on it, right? Because that's what, you know, my friend's mother would call Mexican sausages instead of the kind of very weird food that, you know, my mother would make. But why look? I think Isla's made me realise about country Australia much, much more. I'm less frightened of it. I, you know, like I'd never kind of been around horses and spiders and, you know, all of that stuff, all of the bugs and the insects and the animals and the, it's just, I grew up in cities. So, 
yeah, I don't know. I think I do feel a little bit more Australian, actually, now you say that. I am Australian. I'm going to say I'm Australian. I am. There's a sense of pride there. It's good. <laughs> you've, you've made a few films as well in Adelaide and South Australia, and I'm curious if you can talk about also what it means to be able to shoot films in there and what the support of you know, the Adelaide scene is for a filmmaker being able to tell a story like Isla's Way. Mm. Well, um, in terms of Isla's Way, and, and I'm, I think many people in documentary have to deal with this, there is no pathway to starting a film like that. You can't go and pitch it to a commissioning editor or a, or a state funder or a, a federal funder and say, you know, this is an interesting woman and I think something might happen over the course of the year. Can I have some money to do it? It just doesn't happen like that. So uh, I have a collective of people who we're like-minded, the editor, Christian Ledbeater, David Roberts, the cinematographer, Georgia Humphreys, the producer, and me. That's it. That is the crew. And so just bring them together and saying, listen, this might be something, it might not be. Are you interested in doing this? We can all kind of work in between, but let's kind of head off and do it. Um, and they were all excited about it. And I talked to them about my references and showed them the book and thought, you know, what the film might be, um, that I wanted it to be for cinema. And that was my only focus at the time of making it. And so we we kicked off and then I quickly realised we've got to get some money. So we got um, some money from a private investor. Then the Adelaide Film Festival came in uh, with some completion money when we're already in the edit. But they wanted to see that Wallace Cinemas were interested. I think they were a bit nervous about committing. So Wallace Cinemas, uh, Manda Flett, the programming executive, saw the film in the edit and or saw pieces of it and absolutely loved it and thought oh, there's an audience for this. So they committed to a theatrical release, which we're working on with them right now. And then that brought in AF money. And then right at the very end, we went to Screen Australia for what's called Producer Equity Program, which is uh, if you make a film for around $100,000, you know, very low budget, and it helps you promote it and finish it to a really high specification. So that that was our process. I'm sure this film would not have been made if David, Christian, Georgia and I didn't say, let's make it. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't have been made. Impossible. You talk about the importance of screening in a cinema. What does that mean to you? And also, what does it mean to have Isla's story in a cinema and surrounded by a group of strangers watching the film? Mm. Well, I, I heard someone ask or someone say that they were trying to think of another documentary like this about a woman of that age in that kind of relationship with that story. It just It's not that the documentary is experimental in any way, but they were just trying to think of a similar Australian documentary about a woman of that age told in that way, and they couldn't come up with a title. And that, that really surprised me because I thought, wow, we just don't tell these stories. These women do not get front and centre in a, in a feature film for that an older audience, they don't. And, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with algorithms. It's a word we hear all the time. But how is an algorithm going to judge anything if the content isn't there for the algorithm to judge it? So I hope that there are going to be more films like this made, perhaps ones that don't necessarily... I mean, I love impact docs and, you know, true crime documentaries. I love all of that stuff. But I don't see much of... I don't know, extraordinary people living ordinary lives 
but I think you have to you have to be careful about the person you're picking and how you tell the story. I've told the story the way I wanted to make it. And I think everybody has their individual voice. I mean, luckily mine seems to connect with an audience. So I got lucky, I think. It, I mean, again, I'm singing a lot of praise for it because it is a wonderful film and it is all those reasons why, like I was looking at the list of documentaries that have come out this year and there is, you know, almost an equal amount of true crime stories as there are stories about mental health and they're both valuable, you know, they are, but on yes. the same hand, it's like, okay, <laughs> I don't really feel like sitting down and watching a true crime documentary tonight. Uh, I guess I'm going to deal with depression or anxiety and stuff like that tonight then. Um, they're my options. It almost feels like the case. And it's like, I'll watch anything. I love Australian films, but there's something that's so inventive and unique about this. And it does come down to who gets to tell stories. It gets to, it comes down to that. And, and as you mentioned, driving the algorithm and things like that, I'm disappointed that it comes to that point where you can't look at somebody like Isla's story and go, all right, this is valuable. This is important. And I'm curious if you can talk about maybe that decision process that swirls around in Australian film about who gets to tell stories and how important it is to be able to present stories like Isla's one on screen. You have talked about it already, but I'm, I'm curious if you can expand on that a little bit more. I think it's incredibly complex because... Well, first of all, you know, the state agencies and the federal agencies are dealing with taxpayers' dollars. So, you know, why should the taxpayer have any faith in, in me? Who am I to them to say, this might be good, let's do this? So it's a process of pathways and uh, proving that you perhaps can tell a story or deliver what you say you're going to deliver. I mean, I think if I wanted to do another documentary about an older woman living in an unusual life, it would be very easy for me to do that now because they would consider Isla's Way a proof of concept. But I would still have to go through exactly the same processes of doing applications and finance plans and everything like that, which would make it almost impossible to tell the story. Because, again, if you're going to, to tell this particular kind of story you cannot predict what is going to happen you cannot say what the film will be at the end and in the first couple of months of filming I was terrified I just thought there's no film there's no film you know what am I going to do this is horrific and I just thought I'll just talk to lots of people and have so many talking heads which at one point I did have and I realized during the edit this is not the film I wanted to make so I took all of the talking heads out which was about 35 minutes and just went back to the photographic book and reminded myself of my inspirations and things like Truffle Hunter and, you know, those kinds of beautiful kind of worlds. And I think, I think that if you are, if you predetermine something, it's much harder to to pivot and change it because that's what you've sold in. So we had a certain freedom that that we financed it ourselves and. And we were choosing to do it this way. But I'd also seen a documentary where Truman Capote had been talking about the process of writing In Cold Blood. And he said, I didn't know what the novel was going to be like. I just knew that it would find its shape. And as soon as I watched that, which was just happened to pop up on my, you know, feed, I just thought, yep, this film will just find its shape. And I let go of all the anxiety and I thought it will be what it will be. I, I love that you referenced the Truffle Hunters as well, because there is that, that tonal comparison 
between the mm. two. There's just people mm. living lives and doing what they do. And there's a wonderful moment in that mm. film where I think the husband gets told that he can't go and uh, search for truffles and then sneaks out in the middle of the night. And yes. It's a beautiful moment. But, th yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's like films are made of moments, right? And I just find it so wonderful that if we can go back to talking about... And I, I want to stress as well, obviously, the film is not just the supermarket shopping, but there is just that, that moment where <laughs> Isla sees there's a man in the supermarket and he's got a broken back. And he says, I think something along the lines of what does one need to do to get a hug like that? And there's just uh, mm. this moment where it's like, ah, oh, this beautiful tenderness of embracing mm -hmm. somebody else. And it made me miss my grand's hugs. It made me miss my mum's hugs. My mum's uh -huh. still around, but... There is that sense of yeah. warmth of going, all right, being part of somebody else's life and being able to touch somebody and embrace them. Humanity. Humanity. Yeah. yeah. Humanity. Yeah. And she tells that story. We don't see it. Yeah. She's just telling it. And in and in her telling of it, you know, when when she retells stories, which she doesn't often do, because most of the time she's doing. Yeah. You know, it's it's so uncontrived and so kind of authentic. You, it's kind of it paints a picture. It's very easy to imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. What's it like being able to capture those moments? Because it, this is a film that's full of moments. And as you're saying, you've stripped back those interviews and those discussions in some capacity and the talking heads to make those moments sing. But it is it's what the film thrives on: getting to see that humanity, that shared humanity. So, what's it like capturing that on screen? Half the time, you don't even realize you've got it until you're in the edit. Because, you know, there's 150 hours to get through and the film is 84 minutes long. So it's almost like in the documentary edit, you're developing it as you would a feature, you know, in, in the writing. So you're, you're pulling all the references. Christian Ledbeater, the editor, did all of this. The references to anything, to Alan, to the home, to shopping, to... Um, children and then you're looking at all those references and seeing where the beats and the arcs and transformation might be occurring um but then there are other things that happen like one of my favorite uh, shots in the film is i mean david probably did it organically he probably didn't even realize he was doing it is seeing a little australian kid at christmas seemingly go down what looks like a small little slide only for it to be revealed that it's a mahusive water slide a treacherous Right. As, as this little kid who's, you know, five or six hurtles down, being thrown from side to side and hitting hay bales and ends up in this kind of muddy puddle of water at the bottom. And I absolutely there is nothing more as seen. Yeah. Uh, look, it's it's an absolute delight. And again, I've, I've been so in awe of this film and just how warm it is and how gentle and tender and supportive it is of, of the giving space to being able to tell stories, which is a, a lot of what we mm. talked about in this discussion. So I'm, I'm really appreciative that a, you were able to do that with a supportive team, but also that you've brought mm. Isla into my heart and a lot of viewers hearts as well, because I'm grateful to know that, my worldview has been shifted a little bit because I've learned about Isla's way of life. It's wonderful. Yeah, congratulations. Oh, that's that's so nice of you to say. And and I think the film will be, Wallace Cinemas are, are booking the film across Australia. 
and I'm sure that it will be shown in Perth and, and the regions of um, Western Australia. So hopefully your listeners will get a chance to see it at the cinema soon. Definitely. With that in mind as well, what does it mean? Obviously, we want cinemas in, in cities to see it, but regional cinemas is, is equally important. What's it mean to be able to show it in those areas as well? Oh, it's just such a delight. I mean, last night, in yesterday afternoon in Mansfield, myself and the producer, Georgia, we did a Q&A and in a beautiful little cinema called uh, the Armchair Cinema. And there was probably 20 people there. In, in this gorgeous little theatrette. Um, oh, it was just so wonderful. And their reaction to it, just talking about their own lives. And one of them, as she was leaving, said to me, I'm a drover's daughter. And it reminded me of driving with my father. I nearly burst into tears. I thought, my God, I'm talking to a 95-year-old woman who's a drover's daughter. Yeah. Wow. You know, and 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 another woman who, who was crying at the end, talking about Isla's sister, Barb. And it's just beautiful to have that. It's that effect on people. It's it's so humbling, I have to say. So humbling, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. History, it lives in the nation. It lives in the ground. But it also lives in the people. And if we don't tell these stories, then it's lost. And mm. uh, hopefully that she's gone home and had a conversation with her family about her past as well. Because, yes. all, you know, that's that's the power of films you know we see ourselves but we see mm-hmm. everybody else we we ask who is that stranger in the street and wanting to get you know tumble down their life story um it's a delight yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank, well, you, thank so you so much thank you so much